0: when we decided to dedicate one episode of our podcast to coffee, you were overjoyed as a Turkish coffee addict. But now, at the time of the recording, you seem a bit dismayed. Why is that? Oh,
1: Nazlan. When we decided that I was thinking of talking about Turkish coffee culture in that and how I learned it from my mother, But now, having looked at the issue in detail recently, I realized how I was the number one victim of the capitalist imperialist coffee mafia. (laughs) Come on! (laughs) I'm really struggling right now. I even started to look for alternatives.
0: Please don't. If you switch to tea, it would be just as capitalist and colonialist, if not more. This is the Turkish Coffee Podcast by Nazlan Ertan and Egin Eye Touch. Two witty women who've been friends for decades as they traveled and worked all over the world.
1: You see, Nazlan, as we have such an intrinsic relation with coffee in Turkey, meaning it's not only coffee for us, but also having coffee with family and friends anytime and all the time, without waiting for an excuse, a lifestyle passed on from parents to kids, we don't even ask where it comes from. Kahve yemen de because all Turks
0: think that they know precisely where it comes from. We take it for granted that, as in the Turkish proverb or in the song, coffee comes from Yemen. But I suppose you'll tell me and the listeners,
1: this is just the beginning. Exactly, those times when coffee came from Yemen have long passed. As I researched, I discovered this is a steamy story with promotions and prohibitions, economic and political wars, colonialism and revolution, as well as what touched me most, human rights exploitations. When we look at the history of coffee, we learn a lot about global politics. And we are going to put all that on the
0: table in this Turkish coffee podcast coffee's history, production, its role as a tool of diplomacy, and its inspiration to art, music, and literature. <laughs> Again, my knowledge of coffee's history is rather limited to the Ottoman path, and even on this, there are many different rumors. I understand that the first Ottoman sultan to become aware of the coffee was Selim I, Selim the Grim, due to his rather gloomy outlook. Most of the accounts speak of him discovering the drink during the Egypt campaign and bringing bags of coffee beans back to Istanbul to introduce this drink to the Ottoman court. A Turkish proverb from the era describes the drink as black as hell, strong as death, and sweet as love.
1: Well, some accounts say that the drink was brought to the Ottoman court before Selim's campaign to Cairo by the empire's governor to Yemen. But most agree that the Ottomans became aware of the energizing drink in the 15th century. First at the palace and then in the coffee houses over the empire. From Istanbul to Cairo and to all over Europe, huh? Yes, but the Ottomans wanted to keep the monopoly of the Yemeni product to themselves. However, they couldn't prevent the European colonial powers from stealing the coffee crops from Yemen, which was under the Ottoman rule then, and growing them elsewhere. Thus, Yemen, which was the sole producer of coffee for two centuries, was producing only 2% of it by the 18th century.
0: And today, at supermarket shelves, we see a lot of Costa Rican coffee, Brazilian coffee, Sumatra coffee, and many others, but not very often Yemeni coffee. What a pity for the country where the word mocha originated from, after its port where coffee was being traded.
1: Yes, Yemen lost its place to new Latin American, Caribbean and Southeast Asian producers, which were given the crops by the colonial powers. By 1900, Latin America was producing almost all of it. Now, 30% is produced in Asia and maybe around 10% in Yemen. So now we come to the bitter side of the coffee saga. Brazil, Guatemala, these are poor countries where the conditions of the coffee workers are deplorable. Yes, in Latin America, people working in these coffee bushes are usually poor Indians whose lands were confiscated by the states and then bought by rich farmers. Now, those Indians are forced to work for two, three months a year in those plantations in dire conditions with rotten food sleeping under plastic sheets in the open air. In a way, it's similar to the situation
0: of seasonal workers in Turkey, whether they are locals or refugees, they live in cramped spaces or in tents around agricultural areas, but little sanitation. They work long hours and
1: get very little. But there are some really extreme measures in coffee production. Since you need to pick up the little beans one by one, not to damage the tree, and do it in a short span of time, you need a huge army of pickers. For example, in Guatemala, in the past, there was a law that said that all Guatemalans who didn't have a large property or profession had to pick coffee the army would organize great squadrons of people and march them off to the coffee plantations. Even though there were amendments to the law, just last year, I saw news of alleged child labor in coffee sector in Guatemala. Yes, it's easy to forget the labor conditions as we sip coffee at home
0: or in a cafe. Shouted exchanges between speculators in big cities such as New York and London shaped the lives of 25 million coffee-producing families from Indonesia to Guatemala. These brokers represent big banks and financial organizations who may decide to control the world price, but this has nothing to do with those small farmers, which consist more than
1: 60% of all coffee producers. Indeed, a fair trade system is needed for us to be able to sip our coffees in peace. I dare say it could not be any different if it switch
0: to coffee's eternal rival tea. But let's change gears and go back to the discovery of coffee. In fact, it was not a man who discovered it, was it?
1: No, nor a woman. According to a widely accepted legend, goats discovered it sometime in the 9th century. Their owner, an Ethiopian man called Kaldi, noticed his goats were acting energetically after eating red berries from a nearby bush. So he tried himself, to his delight, his tiredness quickly faded into a fresh burst of energy and he began dancing excitedly with his goats. I don't know about Kaldi of
0: Ethiopia, but I do know the constant battle between Yemen and Ethiopia on just where the coffee was discovered. Vegetal genetics confirm Ethiopia, but it was doubtless Yemen
1: that spread it to the world. Well, if Ethiopia is the place where the coffee came from, Yemen seems to be the place where coffee flourished. And it is believed that the people who introduced Yemen with coffee were the Sufis. They used coffee in their religious rituals so they could stay awake to pray at night. And so it was either
0: the wandering Sufis energized by coffee, or an ambitious governor, or the Sultan
1: himself that brought it to the Ottoman Empire. But at any rate, Islam and the coffee bean seem to have spread through Arabia during the same period. So maybe it's because of this reason they are associated with each other. There are even people who call it Muhammadian being. Coffee
0: houses in Constantinopolis and Cairo were the first drinking establishments in the Empire. The first coffee house in the Empire was opened at Istanbul's Tahtekale district by two Arabs. But ask a Greek, or a room, meaning a Greek of Anatolia, he or she would be sure to say that the first coffee house owners were Greeks.
1: Whoever did it seems to have served a need which was already there but not met, such as coming together with your friends outside of mosques or shops. So the coffee houses, which spread it in the Ottoman Empire, starting from Cairo and Istanbul in 1544, became focal points for socialization.
0: Not surprisingly, its first patrons were literate people with plenty of time to spare. They gathered there, talked, read, wrote poems, played backgammon and chess, but others caught on. Eventually, anyone who could pay the price of a cup was entering and talking with others on anything and everything, including criticizing the Sultan.
1: Oops, precisely what an authoritarian sultan wouldn't
0: want. Not to mention the religious. The imam started complaining that while the mosques were getting empty, the coffee houses were always full. Finally, Sultan Murat IV, a religious and bad-tempered man, banned the coffee houses in 1633.
1: (laughs) Nevertheless, coffee drinking continued in secret. I sympathize totally. Coffee is a very hard habit to break. (laughs) Yes, Turks take their coffee very seriously. If they don't drink it at home, but it doesn't matter even if they do, they fill up the countless coffee houses all over the country any time of the day. I'm not even going to mention the coffee cup reading rituals. Perhaps we save that for another episode though. (laughs)
0: We should. But it's also engraved in our personal lives, as you say. To me, coffee is the ultimate family tradition. My grandmother would always want her coffee at 11 o'clock sharp and she would get very angry if it was ever late. My mother would not drink Turkish coffee, but she drinks Americano and she drinks it at exactly the same minute. I'm an espresso girl. I only drink Turkish coffee when in company, particularly with you.
1: (laughs) Maybe I remind you, your grandmother. You know I'm a Turkish coffee addict. I have carried my Turkish coffee wherever I lived outside of Turkey. And recently, as you know, when people rushed to the supermarkets for toilet papers just before the lockdown, my first thought was, oh, I must go and get coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you saying, that (laughs) i became like this because of the building my family lived in izmir and still actually my mother is living there there are eight flats in this building and all women are housewives including my mother so these women wouldn't start the day without having coffee together so many times i remember neighbors knocking on the door with a hot pot of coffee it has been the same for almost 40 years until the lockdown another great tradition that the lockdown has
0: stopped yes but you know the turkish saying The soul desires neither coffee nor coffee shop. The soul desires conversation company. Coffee is merely an
1: excuse. The Ottomans must have felt the same way, so the coffee houses were slowly re-established. Coffee prohibitions were repeated several times in coffee's early Turkish history, and during one ban, second-time offenders were allegedly sewn up in leather bags and thrown into the Bosphorus. You think? But similar bans were seen all
0: around the empire in the 16th century, from Mecca to Cairo. The Persian Empire also put similar prohibitions, but with no success. Finally, kissing the hand they could not bend, sultans and religious leaders embraced coffee. It could have been due to economic reasons as well. After all, the Ottoman Pashas owned a good number of the coffee
1: houses. And also Ottomans had a global monopoly over the crop. Thanks to European travelers and the Ottoman
0: trade, diplomacy and expansion, it did not take Europe long to learn about coffee. There are lovely stories which refer to the Turkish ambassador to Paris, or genissaries at the gates of Vienna as those who introduced coffee to Europe. But these are just tall
1: tales. In Turkey, the most widely told coffee story is the coffee left at the gates of Vienna by the retreating Ottoman army in 1683. Apparently, a Polish guy who knew what coffee was from his earlier Middle East visit took those leftovers and opened the first coffee house in Vienna. But in later years, the key innovation of Viennese was adding milk to the coffee with customers using a color chart to indicate their desired shade. That's a good one. Yes, as well as sweetening the taste, milk symbolically transformed the black Muslim brew into a white Christian confection. Well, the Pope had to baptize the coffee because of its popularity, right? Yes,
0: tell us how. While Catholic priests had warned against the beverage of Islam, they denounced it as a devil's offer to the Muslims, as Muslims could not drink wine. So the Pope, who was Clement VIII at the time, was asked to intervene. But when he tasted it, he loved
1: it. So he said he would cheat the devil by baptizing it. There's no evidence of this baptizing of coffee. But it's so widely told, I'm sure those with a stake in the coffee trade wished he had done so. Actually, coffee's adoption across Christian Europe reflected the continent's complex relationship with the Muslim and, in quotes, barbaric Turks. There was a fascination with the Orient and the coffee. Yet, European travelers, writing in the early 17th century, often tried to separate the drink from its Muslim association. By reimagining its past, suggesting that coffee was the base of the drink prepared by Helen in Homer's Odyssey, or it was the Spartans' black soup drunk before the battles. By locating coffee among the ancient Greeks, they were claiming it for European civilization. Yes, another battle of coffee
0: Greek coffee versus Turkish coffee. But they lost the claim exactly 10 years ago. In 2011, UNESCO regarded Turkish coffee as intangible cultural heritage, also known as living culture, passed on from generation to generation within Turkish
1: families like yours. And like yours. (laughs) This is interesting. Even though our coffee is not produced here, it's called Turkish coffee due to its unique method of preparation and social culture it created. Yes, it is the only coffee prepared without draining. The ground sinks to the bottom of the cup. And even though we have machines right now, the best coffee with foam is made with the world's oldest cooking method. put on slow fire, and remains warm longer due to its form. The place of
0: coffee in Turkish culture is quite unique. Even the Turkish version of the word breakfast,
1: kahvaltı, means something eaten before coffee. So everything revolves around coffee. We don't have coffee after meals, but have meals before coffee. Most people think that we should
0: always have water with coffee. Some say water should be drunk later, but on the contrary, it is to wash off the floor of everything else in the mouth in order to fully taste the coffee.
1: I like to drink it before and after, and I would really make a big fuss if somebody serves it without water. I know, and so do all the restaurant owners in Ankara. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) But
0: I understand water, and also the Turkish delight, which is usually served with coffee, to
1: chase away the bitterness. But what about salt in coffee? Oh! The most important feature of an engagement ceremony is serving the prospective groom salty Turkish coffee to test his resilience. If he drinks it without revealing any annoyance, He passes the test. Turkish coffee is also said to have many health benefits such as balancing
0: the cholesterol level and helping digestion. And because of these reasons, the European travelers in Ottoman towns started to import it to Europe. The first batches entered Europe through the
1: major ports of Venice and Marseille. Once coffee was in Europe, news of it spread quickly, inspiring enterprising travelers and recent immigrants to import the bean. The first English coffee house was opened in the University town of Oxford. Apparently by a Jewish man named Jakob. Increasingly popular among its natural constituents as students, coffee houses became regular meeting places. Now, that's very interesting, again because I always thought that the first coffee house was opened in London. No, no, the first one was in
0: Oxford, though it's less known in Turkey. I know why the London one is famous. It was
1: opened by a man from Izmir, wasn't it? Yes, but we don't know, again, whether he was Greek or Armenian. There are different stories on that too.
0: But what we know is that he was the servant of a Levantine merchant who had moved to London and he has been making Turkish coffee for so long to the guests of his boss that he decided to establish his own business and financed by his boss, he opened a small coffee shop.
1: Yes, in a tiny alley in central London. But others followed quickly. The English nicknamed coffee houses Penny Universities because Anybody who had a penny could enter and benefit from hot discussions. London's coffee houses must have been very lively, but I suppose the owners of taverns and women whose husbands were there absolutely hated them. Yes, actually they prepared dozens of petitions against coffee houses. To have them closed? Yes!
0: Fortunately, the English doctors were on the side of the coffee houses. They thought coffee had healing abilities. But just across the channel, wine-loving French doctors
1: were not convinced. (laughs) Yes, the English were swayed by the medical virtues of coffee and the sociability of their coffee houses. Parisians, on the other hand, were finally won over the sake of fashion, as you can expect. (laughs) Already a favorite in Marseille, the drink became popular in the French capital during the visit of a Turkish ambassador. Yes, the French owed their coffee and Turcomania to Suleimana, the Ottoman ambassador to
0: the court of Louis XIV, the Sun King. When Suleyman arrived in Paris, he brought a sizable amount of coffee and he introduced Turkish style coffee to the numerous Parisians. A year later, Molière, writing Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme, mocked
1: the chic Parisians dressing like Turks and drinking Turkish coffee. Isn't it funny? Turkish people who acted like French have also been mocked here throughout history. The coffee made its way to literature and to music as well. In 1732, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote the coffee cantata just as coffee was beginning to catch on for some and causing antipathy in others in Germany. Coffee opponents claimed that coffee caused infertility in women. The cantata of Bach is a one-act parody on the increasing paranoia about the coffee addiction.
0: Regardless of how coffee entered into use in a given country, as medicine or in fashion, the coffee houses firmly established their presence in the European society. In fact, cultural philosopher George Steiner was once asked to define the idea of Europe. And he replied, Europe is made up of coffee houses, places of romantic encounters,
1: conspiracies, poetry readings, revolutionary ideas and simple laziness. Coffee dominated not only the lands of the Ottoman Empire and Europe, but the whole world, from the US to Japan. Today, it's estimated that world population drinks around 2 billion cups per day. Turkey is not even among the countries which tops coffee drinking. Which country is on top of the list? You won't believe, but neither the land of Parisian cafe, nor the land of Italian espresso bar. I will die if you say India, the land of tea. Could it be the Dutch, the homeland of undrinkable coffee? <laughs> no. Interestingly, Finland consumes the most coffee per person, four cups a day. Understandable, cold country. Indeed, when compared with Nordic countries, Turkey, France, and Italy are medium-sized beverages in a sea of coffee-drinking nations. But again, an addict is an addict anywhere. And
0: unfortunately for us addicts, The global area suitable for coffee production will be halved due to climate change by 2050. And of course, this will take its toll
1: not only on addicts, but on small, poorer producers. Isn't it strange that the coffee in our cup is an immediate tangible link with the rural poor in some of the most deprived parts of the world? It's kind of a connection across space and cultures from one end of the human experience to the other. I'll try to remember this while drinking coffee next time. Do we have time to go into the third generation coffee
0: brewers who said that they are into ethic coffee? No, Mm, huh? Yeah,
1: maybe a follow-up then. But just before we go, can I offer you the perfect cup? According to Esquire's
0: Handbook for Hosts, published in 1949, you cannot. This can only be done by a man, as grinding fresh coffee is a man's job. Hmm. (laughs) This
1: is quite sexist, but I won't challenge it for once, as I love a man who makes coffee for me.
0: (laughs) See you next week then. See you next
1: week.